and welcome to Pell the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Oh, Wolfond, I am excited. You know why I'm excited? I've got in-season tournament fever. Catch it in Toronto. The first in-season tournament game we will be in attendance for ever. It is a momentous occasion here. I mean, if it's anything like the last in-season tournament night, I think we're going to be in for a treat of some sort or another. I don't know if we're going to see another brouhaha, but <laughs> tensions are boiling over, man. The the intensity is palpable. Everyone uh, wants that trip to Vegas. <laughs> players have come out and been very open about how much they care about the cash prize. Man, this is something that... When we did a video on the scores YouTube page about it, and like, and I, because if you remember, even last year when the tournament was first floated, I think you were actually more the voice of reason, maybe to a lot of our listeners, that won't surprise them. But <laughs> I, I was like, you know, a little confused about how things might work. And, and when details were only kind of trickling out, also, you know, a reminder to not overreact to when details are trickling. But I think I was lower on the idea, much lower on the idea than you were when it was kind of like first floated and we were first told it was coming, but we didn't really know the details. And then I pulled a complete 180 once the details came out because I was really impressed with how they were able to fold it into the regular season, not disrupt the season in any way other than the championship game. And also I liked the incentives for the players and like yeah. all that stuff. And that was before they got Michael Imperioli to do the promo. Yeah, exactly. So imagine how all in I was at that. You, I was already all in. At that point, I was coming out the bottom of the bottle. Like, you couldn't get any more all in than I was. But what I was going to say is, but then, so then when I did the, the video for the score YouTube page at that point, explaining why I had been, you know, a skeptic had been turned into a believer and why I thought the in-season tournament was going to be a win for the NBA, I was surprised by how many people commented about the fact that we were like overselling the financial and stuff like basically being like you're kind of naive if you think NBA players are going to care about an extra half million and my argument back was like I get that it is not a lot in the greater scheme of things compared to their contracts and how much they're all worth but it is still a half million dollars per player on the line if you get to that point and don't forget like if you even get to the knockout round there's more money you get another, like you get to the semis, there's more money. And yes, by the time you get to the final, it's 500 grand for the winner. And I don't remember what it is for the loser. But the point is, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars that I don't care how wealthy you already are. If you're a professional athlete who's got incentive to win anyway, because, you know, it's a competitive thing and you're a professional athlete. And then you also throw that. And look, by the way, I know you're rich, but you can also win a few hundred extra thousand dollars by winning this game. You cannot tell me they're not going to be extra jacked up for that. Like it, the, the argument that they, like, people like money cash. Exactly. Right. People really like money. Exactly. Even in the most cynical sense, if you want to look at it like that, it's, it was still a good idea by the NBA and yeah. people that thought it wasn't enough money or like it wasn't going to move these players are being proven wrong right now because the players themselves are coming out. Like, Paolo Banquero came out and said something along the lines of, like, I don't know about you, but I would like an extra $500,000. Yeah, and something that Dame came out and said, and this was a point I made when they announced what the cash reward was going to be, is like, yeah, for me, Damian Lillard, making 50-plus million dollars a year, maybe five hundred grand feels like a drop in the bucket. But there are guys on this team who are making the league minimum 
and half a million dollars is not chump change for them. That's like almost doubling their salary. So, you know, I, I think in that sense, there definitely is the added incentive. And I can understand as a fan saying, well, for us watching this, I don't care. Like, that's not going to increase my investment knowing that there's a cash incentive for the players at the end of this. Like, I'm not expecting fans of a team when their team wins the in-season tournament to be like, hell yeah, an extra half million for all the players <laughs> on the team that I love. It's The point is just to get the players to care enough to make this a worthwhile endeavor. And so far, I think we are seeing that. Like, something... That, that's been interesting to me is like watching in garbage time of some of these games teams in some cases trying to run up the score and pad their point differential because they know that that is going to be a tiebreaker and like even something as simple as that is saying to me that yeah these guys actually care about this thing and look there are probably going to be some tweaks to it if it remains you know in future years it's not always going to look exactly like it looks now maybe there is a change to the incentive structure at some point but i think if the idea was look we got to see this is the first year of us doing this we don't know how it's going to play it's an experiment and what i said at the time was you're going to have to let this build where if it's still here 10 15 years down the road it's going to feel different. It's going to mean something different because there's going to be this history. It's going to have come to mean something in the context of the NBA season that it doesn't mean now because there's no precedent for it. But the fact that in the first year of its existence, we're seeing a modicum of effort and intent and care on the part of the players is a really good sign. Agreed. And to your point about the point differential stuff, um, I don't know if you saw, I think it might've been last week, but it was it Pistons Sixers. And Bede took a three late in a blowout win that uh, the Pistons apparently took exception to. And Embiid said after the game, essentially, like, learn the rules. The point <laughs> differential matters. So shout out Joel Embiid for that. Yeah. And then, yeah, my last my last note was just going to be um, to your point about how, like, okay, the fans don't necessarily care about the fact that the players can get richer by winning this. But what I will say is if the players themselves are invested and seem like they are really into this and are treating it like something that means something the fans in turn I think will reciprocate because if you're a fan of a team and they're playing something that the players are showing is meaningful and they're going you know balls to the wall and it's your favorite players out there they're playing heavy minutes as if this game means something you're going to become naturally more invested if you're a fan of that team as opposed to you know if the, if this was treated very lackadaisical and by the end of it, it was like mostly G leaguers from each team playing because no, like the teams didn't care. It would be hard for the fans to like keep that interest, right? So I think, yeah, sure, the fans may not care about the financial incentive for the players, but if that financial incentive is making the players care more and the best players are showing that they want to win this thing, the fans of those teams in kind will feel the same way. Yeah, and I think the other thing, which again I I mentioned at the time when they announced what the structure of it was going to look like. I think the best thing that could happen to the NBA Cup is for two legitimate contenders to be duking it out in the finals. For it to feel, and I know part of the appeal, at least for some people, was maybe there's going to be a team that comes out of nowhere to win this thing, and that's going to be like their championship. Like the, the Orlando Magic can hang an NBA Cup banner. That's what it's going to... I do love that the Magic are the team referenced every time anyone talks about this. Might as well put the Magic logo on all the uh, NBA Cup logos as if they're the sponsor for this. 
they're just the perfect example of a team that is actually good enough to conceivably win it because they are a team on the rise. They have well, you know, one of the best defenses in the league right now. Like they're just in that perfect sweet spot of being pretty good, not an actual contender, but a team that would care enough about something like this to go balls to the wall and win. It's just they're in that I, sweet spot. I agree, but I need that I need that magic jersey patch on all the other jerseys because the NBA Cup is brought to you by the Orlando Magic. Yeah, that's. <laughs> uh, I just um, what was I saying? I, I'm sorry, I, I I completely derailed your thought. You were talking. No, okay, okay. What I was saying, as much as people have talked about the the exciting possibility of a team like that coming out of nowhere and winning this thing, and that being what makes the NBA Cup great. I think what would legitimize it is if it was like Nuggets Celtics in the finals. Yeah. You know what I mean? And everyone's like, oh, okay. Like clearly the teams are caring about this because the best teams in the league are here. And this might be a finals preview. And that is more reason to me, A, for people to tune in and B, for people to recognize, yeah, this is a real thing that teams care about. And that is like telling us something about the quality of these teams. Yeah, I think the best case scenario is probably maybe one, like one or two long shot teams make the the knockout portion of it or something and have some sort of Cinderella run. But agree that in the end, the best thing for the NBA, especially in the inaugural version of this, is for two heavyweights to match up in the final of it. Somehow we spent like ten minutes talking about something that wasn't even on the agenda today. How do you how do you rope me into these things, Cash? Why do we even say somehow at this point? <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, yeah, we weren't planning on talking about the in-season tournament, but it is an in-season tournament night, so what the hell. I, I wanted to talk today, Cash, about some under-the-radar storylines that have caught our attention in, what's it been now? Like, it's been three weeks, I guess, of the season, or three and a half? Like, a, a half? little over three, yeah. Three and a half weeks of the season. Look, I think... If you, there's so much NBA content out there right now, like you can go and find great writing, great podcasting about pretty much any topic in the league. But I do think we want to focus on maybe some of the more undercovered storylines. Like, I don't want to talk about the Clippers right now, despite the fact that, you know, this bomb just, well, not really a bomb. What's, what's a, like a smaller scale version of a bomb, Uh, a grenade. Sure. A Chris, a Chris Haynes grenade. I'm sorry, I don't, I, the violent imagery is not something we should be shooting for, but Chris Haynes announcing that Russell Westbrook has requested to come off the bench for the Clippers, which we have been talking about off air pretty much ever since they made the Harden trade and decided that they were going to start all four of those guys together. We've been texting back and forth, wondering why they haven't moved one of Westbrook or Harden to the bench by now. and. You know, similar to Adrian Griffin coming out and being like, you know, sometimes the players know better than the coach. And they told me we should revert back to our classic, very successful drop defense. I had to listen to them. It took Russ, I guess, you know, approaching Ty Lue and Clippers coaching staff and saying, this is what's going to be best for the team. I said I didn't want to talk about the Clippers. What am I doing? Okay. <laughs> yeah, this I didn't rope you into this one. This is all Fair you. enough. I roped myself. Yeah. I don't want to talk about the Clippers. I don't want to talk about Zach Levine. I want to talk about some more under-the-radar things that are going on around the league. So, I actually, the one that I know you want to talk about, because something you just wrote about, the Indiana Pacers offense, I don't really think that this qualifies as under-the-radar, because it, to me is one of, you know, at least Tyrese Halliburton right now is like one of the biggest stories in the sport. 
But small market team, I don't think coming into the season there was, I think there was some excitement about what they could be, but I don't think there was like, oh, this could be the best offense in the league and maybe the most fun team in the league to watch type excitement. But that is what is happening so far. And I know as you wrote in that piece, look, to say this is currently the best offense in NBA history, pretty much any season at this point, that is going to be the case. Like the Sacramento Kings last year had the most efficient offense in NBA history. The important thing to me to look at when we're actually trying to gauge where does this team stack up historically is how are they faring relative to league average. And the Kings last year, despite having the most efficient offense on a you know per possession basis in history, relative to league average, we're like 50th or something like that. This Pacers team currently, relative to league average, is the third best offense of all time. I don't necessarily think that's going to hold, but I do think it's worth talking about. So as someone who just wrote about them and who has been on the Halliburton train or closer to the front of the Halliburton train, I'll say, than I have been for longer, what are you seeing from the Pacers that you're loving right now and why do we need to talk about this team? Okay, so first off, why I think we need to talk about them on an episode that is otherwise supposed to be kind of like under the radar things is because, like you said, it's it's not that, oh, no one's talking about Halliburton or the Pacers or how fun they are, but I would say like... The average NBA fan, even an NBA fan who's listening to NBA podcasts, who's not a Pacers fan, might not realize, like, if they're just sitting down on a given night thinking, oh, I want to watch some ball tonight, there's a lot of games on, that the most entertaining option for them right now is the Indiana Pacers. I think that part in itself is kind of an under-the-radar story for the average NBA fan, and you touched on it a little bit there, but it like, okay, one, it's not just that they're the most efficient offense. Again, I'm not just saying, well, they're the most efficient offense and therefore they're the most entertaining team. As I wrote in the piece, like just saying, oh, they're the most efficient offense in the league or even starting to talk about them historically is almost like a disservice and an understatement for how explosive this team has been. They've played 11 games. They've topped 120 points nine times. They've scored 130 four times. They've scored 140 twice, neither of which was in overtime. They topped 150 in a 152-111 demolition of the Spurs. They've also given up 150. Agreed. And listen, we can talk about their poorest defense. I've got that in there too. But in in a recent two-game set with the Sixers, like two games in three days against the Sixers or whatever it was, a Sixers team that went into this two-game set with a top five defense, the Pacers averaged 129 points. Like, they score a ton, they play at breakneck speed, they give up a ton of points, it's entertaining to watch. The pace part of it, they are, I believe, the second or third, when I wrote the piece uh, like a day and a half ago, they were playing at the second fastest pace, I think after Washington. But it's not just that, like, oh, they're this team that, you know, they want to create turnovers and get out and run off their defense. Their poorest defense is not slowing them down either because they're the fastest team after opponents makes. If you look at in predictables stat where it shows seconds to first shot of a possession kind of thing, but this is after opponent makes, they're the fastest team. So like they're committed. Fastest team ever, I think. Yes. Committed to running no matter the situation. Oh, the other team just scored on us. Doesn't matter. Now Halliburton's a huge part of that because his hit ahead passes and just commitment to getting this team out and running. Like he catches that ball off the inbounds off an opponent make. And the Pacers have guys already running the floor, flanking the wings, and he's hitting one of them. How teams haven't picked up on that yet and tried to shut that down. I don't know, but here's the other part of it. 
even if teams could slow them down, right? Even if teams kind of figure out, okay, we this part of it is not necessarily easy to stop, but at least easy to slow down because it's we have to remember even after a make, we need to have to be ready. We need to be like running the wings with these guys and maybe creating a little more ball pressure against Halliburton. We can't just let him easily throw the ball 40 feet and have them, you know, already with a numbers advantage the other way. Okay, slow them down. Turn it into a half-court game. Guess what? The Pacers have the most efficient half-court offense in cleaning the glasses 21-year database. There is not a lot you can do currently to either slow this team down or slow their offense down even if you slow them down. And all due respect, obviously, to Rick Carlisle. Like, I asked um, Adrian Griffin about this the last time the Bucs were in town because the Bucs are one of the teams that have seen the Pacers already. They gave up 126 to the Pacers on a night when Indiana beat Milwaukee despite Giannis having 54 points. And I, I was asking Adrian Griffin, look, as, like, one of the few coaches, opposing coaches who's seen them already, what do you see? Like, how is this team able to be this good offensively with what, you know, I don't think anyone would say is the most talented offensive roster. And Adrian Griffin, you know, kind of typical coach, really praised Rick Carlisle and said he's a terrific coach who's been around forever. This shouldn't be that surprising. But all due respect to Rick Carlisle, all due respect to the rest of this roster, this team being this explosive is certifiably insane. Like, it does not make a lot of sense other than the fact that Tyrese Halliburton has reached a level of offensive mastery in season number four for him that is just like out of this world. And what he's doing with the supporting talent at his disposal is pretty effing nuts. We were texting about this off air. I wrote, like I had a line about it in the piece where Tyrese Halliburton is probably the closest thing we have in the modern game to Steve Nash. And what I don't necessarily mean like the exact way he plays or when you watch him and his movement, he reminds you of that. But in terms of the way he optimizes his team's offense and his combination of like shooting efficiency, like marksmanship, the pace he plays with, his commitment to getting his team out and running, his pick and roll savvy, as we both kind of said, is very Nashian. And you're seeing it bear out in the results. You mentioned how a better way to look at it in terms of historical context, rather than just saying, well, how efficient are they compared to history is how are they relative to league average? Now you mentioned it was third. When I wrote the piece, it was second. They might've dropped since then because league averages change obviously every day. But as of right now, the Pacers are 8.8 points per 100 possessions better than league average this season. The only other three teams who've been eight plus in a season were the 2003, 2004 Mavs run by Steve Nash, the 2004, 2005 Suns run by Steve Nash and the 2015-16 73-win Warriors. That is the company, a team with Tyrese Halliburton, and, okay, sure, Miles Turner's a good player. Like, Bruce Brown, I wrote about his connective energy in the piece, but, like, this team should have no business keeping that kind of historical company, and they're doing it because Tyrese Halliburton is insane as an offensive player. And, again, like, when, when I talk about his Nashian optimization of an offense, that's what I mean. There are few guards in history, and I realize that like some people might be rolling their eyes and like about how, how hyperbolic that sounds. But I do not over exaggerate when I say there are few guards in history who would be able to take this Pacers team and create this efficient and explosive of an offense out of them. It's unreal. Yeah, even for just a month, you know that exactly. And like- and to the point about small sample sizes, because. 
obviously, you know, it's it's you can't compare what a team's done in an eleven game sample to what teams do in eighty two game samples. But even if you just look at how efficient a team has been through the first eleven games of a season, this Pacers team has been the most efficient. Again, that also has to do with you know the way the efficiency boom and the analytics revolution and three point revolution has happened. But same thing, you go relative to league average, like. There's just not really many ways you can poke holes in this start, whether it's small sample size. Well, guess what? They've been the best in a small sample size ever. Relative to league average, well, they're the second or third best ever. Like, can't slow them down. Can't make them less efficient when you do slow them down. It's it's really nuts, man. And uh, Halliburton, uh, just to throw a few num- more numbers out there in case somehow some people listening to this still don't get how insane this is. Halliburton's now the third player ever to average at least 24 points and 12 assists through his first 10 games of a season. The other two guys were James Harden in 2016 and Oscar Robertson in 1961. He is the first player ever to have a two-game span where he had at least 32 assists without a turnover. Like, there's just not a lot more for me to say. He's unreal. His Pacers offense is unreal. I don't know if you want to get into, like, maybe what you see from, like, because when I watch him, and I put this in the piece too. It's like, it's the formula is like as simple as it is devastating. They run like hell at every opportunity. Their their aim is definitely to run the ball down opponents' throats at every chance they can. But then they flow into these like pretty simple but effective pick and rolls between Halliburton and Turner out of that pace um, with shooters around them. It's like a spread pick and roll. Obviously, they got Bruce Brown and some like smart movers and cutters, but like that's pretty much it. They also don't turn the ball over. They're second in terms of being the least turnover-prone team by turnover rating in the league. So, like, like, am I missing something here when I watch? Is there some, like, convoluted, complex offensive system that I'm missing here? Because I don't see it. I just see a team that's running simple but effective stuff. Okay, so a few things. Like, the, the turnover rate really jumps out. Because for a team that is playing this fast... And that passes the ball as much as they do. Like, they're fourth in the league in passes per game. Which, that on its own, considering the rapid time of possession that you alluded to, their average time to shot being under 11 seconds and still being that high up in the passes per game rankings is pretty wild. And then you couple that with the extremely low turnover rate. Despite throwing a ton of passes and playing at breakneck pace, that's pretty astonishing. And that is very much Halliburton's influence. So when I texted you a few days ago being like, he is Nashian in his ability to conduct an up-tempo offense, I, you know, I'm not saying I thought I was the first person that that had ever occurred to before, but you immediately showed me the piece you were working on where you said exactly that. A couple days later, I saw David Thorpe make that exact same comparison on a True Hoop podcast. I heard the, uh, the guys on Thinking Basketball make that same comparison. It's like, okay, so... I guess other people are seeing what I'm seeing. It's just for him, and I give credit to the entire team, but obviously Halliburton is the head of the snake, the ability to make those kinds of decisions at speed. And when you talk about the pace they play with, it's not just about getting out in transition. It's not just running off of turnovers and opponent misses, not just running off of opponent makes. It's when they get into the half court, everything they do is done at full speed. And that is helped, obviously, by the fact that they play with four smalls on the floor almost, I guess maybe less so this season because Obi Toppin is in, you know, a lot of their starting and closing lineups. And but- just a quick note on that, too, is that was a really good under-the-radar pickup because Obi Toppin thrives in transition and 
he looks great playing with a lead guard who is committed to pushing the ball in transition. Well, and he looks great playing in that kind of space. Right. To cut and to roll and do these things that he didn't really get an opportunity to do in New York when he's playing in a, in a much more clogged offensive environment where he's kind of forced into spot-up duty a lot of the time. And now he's getting so much more of an opportunity to flex his play finishing muscles. You know, it's not just about, I guess, having four guards on the floor a lot of the time. It's just having guys who can operate at full speed and Toppin, despite functionally being a big, can definitely thrive in an up-tempo system. So I think the speed at which they play at, like, yeah, it's not that they're doing anything completely revolutionary in terms of like the sets they're running on offense. Like they, they can run some ornate stuff, but I think more than that, it's just that they're forcing the defense to make decision after decision after decision in a very short amount of time. So it's like, if there's an action they're running and a lot of the actions they run are like guard guard actions, right? Where sometimes they'll connect on the screen, but sometimes they're ghosting out of it. Like a lot of the time they're ghosting out of it. And if you're not on top of that, whether it's, you know, Tyrese with the ball or, you know, like Buddy Heald flying off of the ghost screen, they're gone. And you can know what you want to do in the instance of like a, you know, a Halliburton Heald ghost action. But if that's like the fourth decision you have been forced to make in like a five second span, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to mess it up. And I think the fact that they can force the defense to make those kinds of mistakes without making a lot of mistakes themselves, it, it's, it's well-drilled stuff. Like you can tell that this is a well-coached and well-prepared team because of their ability to make those rapid decisions and force the defense to keep up with, with their tempo. So Halliburton is obviously leading the dance and, and his decision-making is borderline unparalleled you know in like the non-Jokic division in the NBA right now and just like the way that he is able to map the floor constantly to know where everybody is to know what his reads are despite the fact that he's cycling through all this stuff in like a couple of seconds is to me what is powering that and then like they're shooting the hell out of the ball man like that's obviously Halliburton's you know facilitating has a lot to do with that but you know, you've got guys like, I mean, Miles Turner shooting 40% from three. Bruce Brown is at 38% from three. Aaron Neesmith is at 46% from three. Jalen Smith, Smith has this dude hasn't yeah. missed a three all season yeah. for all intents and purposes. Like their true shooting percentage as a team, as a team is 61%. Yes. And, and I put this in the piece too, like they're not going to shoot. I think they're close to 39% from deep as a team. They're not going to shoot that all season. Probably not for much longer, to be honest with you. But even if you look at their um, expected effective field goal percentage, like their location um, percentage, you know, the, the basically the the measure of their shot profile that cleaning the glass uses, they're tops in the league. So it's like, yeah, they're not going to shoot this well for much longer, but the process, the eye test, the shot profile still indicates that they should continue to shoot well and score well. It's not like, you know, they have this terrible shot profile and they're just being bailed out by ridiculously unsustainable shooting luck. Yeah, they're shoot, they're getting a little bit of shooting luck, but they're also getting shots from the right areas, from the right players, like going about it the right way. I think they'll be fine. And my last note, and this kind of ties into the defense that you mentioned, 
and it's terrible. Like their defense is trash. They're 28th. Only the Spurs and Hornets are worse. There's only so much Miles Turner can cover for. They're weak on the perimeter. They don't have a lot of size. They need a wing stopper. You're going to hear a lot about OG Ananobi, Indiana University alum over the next, like, however many months. You know, they're not going to be a contender because their defense is bad. We know that. But this is a team, like, taking baby steps, trying to get just get back into the playoffs for the first time. You know, what this spring will be four years. Something I found in doing research for this piece is for the last six seasons, every team that has a top five offense has made the playoffs. The last team to miss the playoffs with a top five offense was the 2016-17 Nuggets, who finished fourth on offense, but 29th on defense. They won 40 games. But like the Hawks a couple years ago, as recently as 2022, finished bottom five in defense and still made it because they had a top five offense. For the most part, last six years, you can scratch out a top five offense. You at least make the playoffs. You're not necessarily a contender if your defense sucks, but you'll make the playoffs. They're gonna they're gonna play some sort of postseason basketball, even if it's the plane. If you have a top five offense, and that is a start for this team, I think that's a pretty reasonable expectation based on what we've seen thus far. Sure, they might not end with the most efficient offense ever. They might not end top five relative to league average all time. They might not end top three this season. But I think from what we've seen, top five this season on the offensive end is a very realistic expectation for this team. And if they can do that, basically if Halliburton stays healthy, because they were top five offensively last year when he was on the court, if he stays healthy and in the lineup, they should maintain that. And that should give them a path to the playoffs. Jalen Smith has an 80% true shooting. Right yeah, now. he's like 10 of 15 from deep or 11 <laughs> of 16 from deep or something stupid like that. Yeah. I And also, I think Miles Turner, it's just crazy what playing with Halliburton has opened oh, up yeah. for him offensively. I. Oh, yeah. He's just got to be so grateful to be playing with somebody. And just, again, like he, he, neither he nor Sabonis was really able, I don't think, to spread their wings to their full extent playing next to each other. I think there were benefits to them playing together that people didn't always talk about. Like people wanted to talk about the drawbacks and how they needed to be broken up. But I mean, it's clear now, two years after the trade, that they needed to be broken up. And Turner is really thriving as a guy who, Again, playing next to Sabonis, he had to be a spot-up guy so much of the time. you know. Or at best, it's like he's picking and popping. And it's not like he's getting to do a whole lot of stuff inside the arc because that's Domus's domain. And Turner now is like really ha- has such a nice balance of inside and out yeah. that I think has been beneficial for him and for the Pacers' offense as a whole. So he's one of the highest frequent, at least by like second spectrum stuff that NBA.com uses. Turner's one of like the top five in frequency of his possessions that he's finishing as the pick and roll roller, like the big in that situation. So yeah, which includes pops, but I, I, all the pieces are just working together beautifully again at the offensive end, less so at the defensive end where there's just for as great of a rim protector as Turner is not enough resistance being put up in front of him. He, he can only cover for so much on the back line. And um, I don't know what the solve is to that. I mean, I think maybe there are some schematic tweaks that they can make to help fortify what's happening on the perimeter a little bit. Like right now, and Caitlin Cooper has very obviously done a great job of covering this, but like they're really intent on guarding pick and rolls two on two. And I just don't know if they have the kind of point of attack defenders that can make that viable. So maybe there needs to be some kind of tweak there where they're showing a little bit more help 
uh, at the first layer of defense. But, you know, for now, obviously, the, their, their offense is the big story. And I do want to say, just to cap this off, because I, I talked about, a little bit about the Sabonis-Turner thing. And I, man, there's there is just always going to be an instinct to relitigate that trade. These two franchises are going to be inextricably bound by that trade. And I would just like to veer away from like the insistence on trying to pick out a winner and a loser here. I think we are both in agreement at this point on which team got the better overall player. But that doesn't mean that the Kings lost this trade. And in fact, if anything, we all won this trade. Because if we're talking about who the most fun teams to watch in the league are right now, it's Indiana and it's Sacramento. And that is what that trade allowed to happen. And that is awesome. That's where it can end. We don't have to go any further than that. I agree. And look, look, I'm sure there are Kings fans out there, you know, once in a while, they see what Halliburton's doing and, and for sure think, you know, what might have been if they had kept him. Like, is there is it possible him and Fox could have coexisted and been this crazy dynamic and possibly dominant backcourt? I get that. That's your fan. Like, those thoughts are going to go through your head. It goes through our heads as people that aren't tied to either team. But I think you hit it on the head, man. Like, that's a great way to look at it is that as fans, especially as like general fans, we all won because of how awesome and entertaining these two teams have been largely because of Halliburton ending like leading Indiana to where they are and Sabonis kind of being the fulcrum of that triple handoff system in Sacramento um and then also like I think for me it was cemented when the Kings also then extended Sabonis so it's like because it, it's one thing if say they had traded for Sabonis they make that playoff run and then I don't know he's gone in a year or two or something maybe I think then it's harder to say they're both long-term wins but the Kings ending that playoff drought right, you know, almost right away after getting Sabonis within a year and a half, then extending him and now keeping this core together, having the Fox Sabonis tandem together going forward, Halliburton getting to Indiana, doing what he's doing, already being, you know, signed to that Supermax long-term. Like, I think for me, that's those, the Sabonis deal uh, cemented it for me, where it's like, this was a win for both sides, as hard as it might be for Kings fans to take at some points. And the Kings have looked awesome when Fox has been healthy. Like, I pegged them as one of my potential underachievers coming into the season. We've not because I, I, you know, I did and I didn't want to. I just had some concerns. And one of them was that they wouldn't be as healthy. So, you know, part of that is like, yeah, Fox missed time, which maybe is going to happen more often than it did last year when they were uncommonly healthy. But I would say a lot of the other concerns that I had coming into this year have been quelled by how good they've looked when Fox has been in the lineup. And I think they've actually looked better defensively, which I didn't necessarily expect. Keegan Murray is really showing me something at that end of the floor. Fox looks unbelievable, like even better than he did last year. So, you know, I'm I'm very happy to have been proven wrong so far and hope they continue to do so. Hope that they stay healthy and can actually be even better than they were last year rather than regressing as I feared they might. There was a game, uh, they played Portland about a week ago that, like, some, I'll admit that sometimes I do put a little too much emphasis on these things, but I don't know, sometimes you get a gut feel and it's like, okay, this this is big. Like, that, they almost lost at home to Portland, which would have yeah. dropped them, I believe, to two and five. And with, that was without Fox. That was yes, right, right before he came. Exactly. Yeah. And obviously, you're not buried at two and five. You have 75. But, like, they weren't playing well. Fox was out. Now it looked like they were going to lose at home to Portland. Like, it, it was looking bleak. And Keegan Murray had a big game that night. 
uh, huge game shooting the ball. And they come back and win that game in overtime. Now all of a sudden they're three and four getting Fox back. It just the like it just felt a lot different. And I'm not saying like that game or that Murray performance saved their season in game number seven or eight of the season, but it did feel big. And those are the little things where it's like you remember that they're a different team than they were a couple years ago. You know, like there is there's like a, a toughness about them now or a resiliency a about belief. them now. Exactly, and a belief that they are going to win. They're good enough to win those games against teams they should beat that maybe they just like wasn't there before they did what they did last year. And it all stems from me not giving up on them when they started last year 0-4. Correct. Uh, but yeah, that, that's been, been going well. And Kevin Herter, who like couldn't buy a jumper to save his life at the start of the season, is now scalding hot. So things are starting to click into place for them. Uh, again, we're off topic, obviously. Let's take the break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about some more under the radar storylines. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. We've burned, you know, 35-ish minutes talking about the in-season tournament, talking about the Pacers. I'm going to let you cook now, man. I, this, the rest of this episode is all you. Oh, come on. No, you got you to contribute some of these under-the-radar right, storylines, man. I will. I, will. I mean, I, you can at least tell me what you think of the ones that I've for chosen. Sure. So yeah. one that I want to start with is... The Celtics defense, and not, you know, the fact that the Celtics defense is good is obviously not a surprise, and it's not really an under-the-radar storyline. But the way that they're doing it in some cases has been really interesting to me because over the last few years, we have seen a rise in cross-matching where if there's a non-shooter on the opposing team, a defense will very often have their center guarding that player no matter really what size that player is, right? Like you, last year in the playoffs, Josh Okoji is on the floor for Phoenix and that's who Nikola Jokic is guarding because that allows him to roam and to stay close to the basket and to avoid getting dragged into pick and roll action a lot of the time. There's like a lot of ripple effects to that where these kind of non-shooting guards have had to figure out how to be role men. It's really interesting. And the Celtics are kind of taking this to it's logical extreme by yeah. So Porzingis will be stashed on a non-shooter so that he can hang out close to the basket and muck stuff up. He's a really good rim protector and the Celtics rim protection as a whole has been fantastic this year. But instead of then like putting their four on the opposing team center, they're doing it with their point guard. Like Drew holiday has spent a good amount of time as the primary on Joel Embiid in the matchups between the Celtics and Sixers this year. Obviously, Al Horford has still had a good chunk of that assignment as well, but it's been a lot of Drew Holiday battling with him and fronting him in the post. And a big part of the advantage of, of doing that cross-matching thing is like you can front to try and deny an entry pass. And even if that entry pass gets through, well, then you have Kristaps Porzingis on the backside coming over to help, right? There are a lot of benefits to it. There's that. And then there's the fact that like, if you as the Sixers want to use Joel Embiid, as your primary ball screener, then you're just inviting, you know, Drew Holiday 
to switch onto Tyrese Maxey. And then they can scram it out on the backside and get, you know, Porzingis or Horford onto Embiid. And all you've really done is eat up valuable clock to not generate a mismatch. So it's very interesting what they're doing and the fact that it's been so successful, but it even goes beyond just like holiday because he's kind of a unicorn defender, right? It's not like a lot of other teams could do that. But you'll see the Celtics, like, in the last game they played, there were, like, three or four possessions where Peyton Pritchard was guarding Joel Embiid. And not even on switches. I'm talking, like, he started the possession out guarding Embiid. And the Celtics kind of play a bit of a a hybrid zone, like a bit of a matchup zone, even when they don't come out in a zone alignment. It's just, like, so much switching, especially above the break, that they might as well be in a zone. So that's, that's part of it is just, like, they are recognizing that in this day and age, defense is way more of a five-on-five endeavor than it is a one-on-one endeavor. And so they're not, I don't want to say they're not putting too much thought into the initial matchups. They clearly are. They just feel comfortable tweaking and fiddling with those matchups a ton in a way to like try and disrupt the opponent's rhythm and say, yeah, this initial matchup might seem like a mismatch, but we're going to switch so much anyway, and we're going to help so much anyway that it doesn't really matter as much what the matchups are to start. And the goal seems to be just to like short circuit the opposing team's offense where they're like, maybe have a play in mind that they want to run. And then suddenly Joel Embiid looks and he's got like Peyton Pritchard on him or Julius Randle, another one where like Pritchard spent a few possessions in their game against the Knicks guarding Randle. And it's like, what do we do with this? I, I just think that's really interesting. And, it's like taking this trend that we've seen growing and growing in recent years to a new extreme. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great observation on your end. And I I like the idea of the disruption part of it, right? Where it's like, yeah, like the average per fan or team even and like NBA players are going to look at that and be like, oh, we got Joel Embiid with Peyton Pritchard on? Like, give him the damn ball, throw him the ball. Meanwhile, it, that's actually what the Celtics want you to do because they've got Things that are going to now happen because of that. Oh, the ball went to Embiid, and now this guy's going to go here, and like Porzingis is on the backside. Like th- they want you to do that, and they're going to coax you into doing that. And and like you said, it disrupts what the opposing team's initial plan would have been. I, I had seen them do it with Drew. I didn't notice it with uh, Pritchard or anyone else, and that kind of like, yeah, it throws the whole part about them. Well, the Celtics can do it because they have Drew Holiday out the window because it's like, well, they're doing it with Peyton Pritchard too. So yeah. um, no, but it is. I mean. The Celtics can do it because they have Drew Holiday and because they have Jason Tatum and yes. Jalen Brown and Chris Dapps Porzingis and Al Horford, like so Derek much White. good. Derek White, God, I can't believe I forgot him. He's so good. Well, and one of the things I was going to say originally when you were first talking about this before you mentioned, well, by the way, they're also doing it with Hayden Pritchard, is that, yeah. and one of the benefits too with having Drew and White together now is, like I know in the in the situation you were talking about originally, like Porzingis and Horford were both on the court, but in the lineups where they only have one of those guys, and it's Holiday and White both on the court. The benefit is that you can have a Holiday on, you know, quote-unquote on Embiid to kind of cause this right. disruption and have Porzingis on the backside. And you can still have Derek White on the court with whoever the yeah. opposing team's best perimeter player is. Like, the, right. the the Drew Holiday trade for them just made them so... Like, every okay, a lot of teams are versatile now, but, like, versatile doesn't explain what the Celtics are. Like, they're almost matchup-proof in a lot of ways. And, like... They just have so many options defensively. It's very hard to come up with a matchup 
that the Celtics don't have some sort of answer to, or at least have the best possible answer to. Yeah, and I think, so again, going back to that game against the Celtics, and going back to Holiday and White, when Porzingis wasn't on the floor, they mostly would have Horford guarding Embiid. Because if Porzingis isn't there to be sort of like mm. the backline help to bolster the fronts, then you just kind of want like the best one-on-one matchup for Embiid that you can have. But then you have, you know, one of Derek White or Drew Holiday guarding, you know, D'Anthony Melton or Pat Beverly. And then they're still playing like a one-man zone. Mm -hmm. It's just, again, with their point guard being like the center fielder or rover. And to your point, yeah, you can do that while still having you know, I think t- that's like two of the three best point of attack defenders oh, yeah. in the league, like them and Alex Caruso, right? So, okay, you have now like the second best point of attack defender playing like Rover in the middle of the paint or guarding the opposing team center. So, so that, that means you have to have like the third best point of attack defender in the world guarding the opposing team's best perimeter player. It's wild. Yeah. Um, I, I really am enjoying watching their defense so far this season. Yeah, and also like... Again, I know a lot of this is obviously personnel-based. Like, you can do it because of the personnel they have. But, yeah, a little bit of a shout-out to Joe Mazzula, too, because last year, he took a lot of flack, man, early in the season of people being like, you know, he inherited this job late because they didn't really have any other options. They were scrambling. It was just, uh, it's just Ime Udoka's system that he's running. And, like, it became a thing on Twitter, like Celtics Twitter. You could find a bunch of Celtics fans making fun of Joe Mazzulla. Basically, the whole joke was always that because he like chooses governorly aggressively. The whole joke, <laughs> if you found like Celtics fans on Twitter, was always like all Joe Mazzulla does is like stand there and chew gum. Like something like the Celtics would have a bad loss or a bad quarter, and you would see the the tweets starting to come in like, "Oh, Joe Mazzulla back at just like standing there chewing his gum and like not doing anything else." So shout out Joe Mazzulla because. You know, we're a couple of years removed from Ima Udoka now. The team looks quite different, you know, with Smart gone and Porzingis in and Holiday in. And they're doing their thing at a level that even two years ago, I'm not sure they were doing it. So, again, I understand that a lot of this is personnel-based and you're only as good as the talent at your disposal. But you're still going to do something with it. And to your point, he's doing, like, Joe Mazzulla is doing something creative with it. And so shout out to him. Absolutely. He's and not just the gum chewer. <laughs> Celtics f- fan, again, skeptics and haters. Maybe chewing that gum helps him think, you yeah. know, and I, I don't know. But he's cooking up something, something <laughs> funky in Boston. And uh, yeah, it's it's been cool to watch. So I'll I'll throw out another one since you are telling me that you have, have fewer of these under the radar yeah, stories. I'd say I've got one, like, well, I've got two technically, but they're, they're similar so I've got one solid one, and the other one's kind of like, oh, and this one's similar too. <laughs> okay, so let me let me throw out another one that I don't think has been getting quite enough attention. Obviously, this team and this player have been getting plenty of attention, but I don't know that this particular thing is getting enough attention, and that is that Anthony Edwards has become a mid-range assassin. And believe me, this was not the case before this year, even though we clearly saw him take a big leap last year and look like a budding superstar made the all-star team for the first time, deservedly. So he was still a two level scorer. Like he's a a masterful self-creator who can get his own shot from behind the arc, shoots threes at high efficiency, high volume gets to the rim a ton, but had very little in between game to speak of. And 
right now, uh, first of all, his frequency of non-rim two-pointers, and I have a, a hunch that some of this is scorekeeping bias, kind of fudging this a bit, and we've talked about that on the show before, just the way these things are tracked. There might be a new scorekeeper in Minnesota that is messing this up. I have to investigate more to confirm, but the, the fact that I looked it up in the first place because it because my eyes were telling me something lets you know that it's not all about scorekeeping. So his frequency of non-rim two-pointers has shot up from 28% to 48%, according to Cleaning the Glass. Wow. So that's like nearly half of his shots now are coming from either floater range or long mid-range. And that means he's taking fewer threes and a lot fewer shots at the rim, which again, maybe is like a stat keeper situation. But despite the fact that he still has pretty much no floater game to speak of, he's shooting 54% on long mid-rangers. And to put that in perspective, coming into this year on long twos, he was at 32%. So that's been a huge, I mean, if that holds, that is just a monumental development for a few reasons. I mean, one, like you just need to have those counters in your bag because there are certain pick and roll coverages that are going to force you into that mid-range zone. And if you're comfortable, if you can hit 50 plus percent on the shots that the defense wants you to take, you are functionally unguardable. And and pretty playoff proof. Pretty damn playoff proof. But it's not like th- that's just going to make his pick and roll playmaking, which is going to be a big area of focus for him moving forward as he takes the reins as the number one option in Minnesota. He's gotten a little bit better that this year, still needs to get better than he is now. But him being a threat from mid-range where he's forcing the screen defender to have to account for him further away from the rim is just going to make all of his playmaking reads in the pick and roll that much easier. I, it's a it's a potentially huge development, and I think it needs to get more attention. Yeah, and it's a you know another um, element of this really really good Timberwolves start to the season that I know you've already taken seventeen victory laps on. Uh, they they look really good, man, and like Edwards, like I think w- pretty much everyone acknowledged coming into this year, like Edwards was the guy here now, like he had usurped Carl Anthony Towns. It's kind of like their guy, whether it's, you know, as being their number one offensive option or just even like in in fan terms, the guy that each team has, like Ant had become that for this team. But to see his game like still growing and like I said, like to see him become more playoff proof in the way he's become, in your words, a mid-range assassin is very encouraging if you're starting to think about you know, obviously way too early to think about this, but if you're starting to think about how this team could maybe survive once the postseason rolls around, because they definitely look like a postseason team early in the year based on the quality of play. So th- things trending in the right direction in Minnesota, and obviously Ant is the biggest part of that. All right, let's hear your one valid under the radar. Okay, so I'll line. give you my first, like, le- not that it's less valid, but it's just, it's less interesting to me than the bigger one I want to talk about because we've already kind of touched on this first one. So the first one was just that, you know, like we've talked already about um, Austin Reeves being one of our more disappointing things, players or teams to start the season. So an interesting thing is that Cam Reddish has now taken Austin Reeves' spot in the Lakers starting lineup. And I thought that's obviously interesting. Maybe not so under the radar because it's the Lakers and everyone watches them and talks about them. And we've already talked about Reeves being disappointing. So the more under the radar one that I wanted to talk about that has to do with a lineup change is that Dario Saric 
has taken Kavon Looney's spot in the starting lineup. Now, so far, we haven't really seen it because Draymond Green obviously is now going to be out another four games. Steph Curry has still been out. And so we haven't seen the true new look starting lineup. But from what it sounds like, Dario Sarge is going to replace Kevon Looney in the regular starting lineup, even when Curry and Draymond are back. It's going to be Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, Dario Sarge, and Draymond Green, a lineup that's only played eight minutes together so far. But I was going to say, who's going to replace Andrew Wiggins in the starting lineup? Okay, so that these are, yes, here are a couple of things I want to talk about. Is that as much as this like under the radar thing is about this lineup change, it's more so about the Warrior starters stink right now. And that's a giant red flag because pretty much for the entirety of this dominant Warriors era that's going on a decade now, even in down years, even in years where they were like, you know, fringe contenders more than true contenders, the one thing you could always point to was when the Warriors starters were out there, you know, obviously everyone talked about the death lineups, but even just their regular starters, which was Curry, Thompson, Wiggins, Draymond Looney, they still kill teams. And this year, although obviously in a small sample, yeah, that's far from the case. And the thing is, like the thinking behind replacing Looney with Saric seems to be tailored more to the offensive end, getting more spacing in there. They're not really doing anything outside of Steph bailing them out. And you think, okay, well, that makes sense. I get some more spacing in there. Maybe it unlocks other guys, Wiggins, who I'm going to talk about in a few minutes too. Except that, Sure, while the offense has not been ideal, the problem with the starters isn't really the offensive end. They're giving up 126.6 points for 100 possessions with their five starters on the court together. So, like, sure, Saric might unlock some things offensively, and you can make the argument, hey, maybe if they're scoring more and able to set their defense more, like, that'll help in turn. But I have a hard time believing that the gains they might make on the offensive end are going to negate some very real defensive concerns this team has right now. Like, replacing Kevon Looney with Dario Saric ain't going to help those things. And so, my under the like folding all these things together, my under-the-radar observation is that it's not just like, oh, the Warriors are struggling. It's that the Warrior starters in particular have stunk it up together. And then this all gets to the final point of this point for me which is that yeah you could replace Kamal Looney with Dario Saric you can try to create some space on the offensive end hope that in turn it somehow helps fix your defense but like the biggest problem here is that Andrew Wiggins has been horrible at both ends at both ends I realize it's early I realize he's been in like he was in and out of the lineup last year maybe still getting his rhythm back I get that but you have to be concerned if you're a Warriors fan by not just like, look, he's shooting like 14% from deep. That's less concerning to me. Like he's not going to shoot anywhere near that bad for the entire season, but yeah. look, he's 50% also missed, from the free throw line. Exactly. Too, okay. He's also missed half his free throws, which is something that he hadn't become a great free throw shooter the last couple of years, but he had like, you know, become better than this. He was like 60 something percent. Like the fact that the free throw shooting is also tanking, does concern me that the three-point shooting isn't going to completely bounce back. He's averaging only four rebounds per game. He does not look engaged. Like, this looks alarmingly similar to some of the worst tendencies of, like, Timberwolves-Wiggins when he would float in and out of games, not look engaged all the time, disappear for quarters at a time, halves at a time, sometimes games at a time. He had kind of remedied that 
in his growth as a warrior. Like he was this engaged player who would become a really good defender, who was a really engaged rebounder. Like it's not just the scoring and the efficiency that's down. It's his all around game that looks really, really bad. And if that's going to be the case, the Warriors can screw around with their lineups and tinker and this and that. They're not going to be anywhere near good enough if Andrew Wiggins is anywhere near this bad. Yeah, I would say that so far, Gary Payton II has been their like best and most impactful wing player. Yeah. Am I like... And I think Am he I left forgetting the about anybody with an injury. It's their wing situation is like really dire right now. If they can't get better production out of Wiggins and Clay, and I know you said like the the starting lineup thing isn't about their offense, but it is notable to me that you look at Steph, and he's shooting forty five percent on twelve and a half threes per game. And yet the Warriors are still twenty first in the league in three point percentage as a team. Like, they're just not shooting the ball well at all, which maybe explains why they feel like they need to get Saric into that starting lineup instead of Looney. But Jesus, man. Uh, And I've got, like, crazy whiplash with these takes about the Warriors because I came into the season when we did our bold predictions episode saying, I don't see this as a team that has any shot at making the conference finals. Then they get off to this great start, which was maybe aided by a bit of a soft schedule. But I'm like, actually, they look really good. Maybe I was too hard on them. And now I'm thinking, no, I was appropriately hard on them. This team's cooked. So I don't know. Maybe this is just a team that I'm going to have to waffle back and forth on over the course of the year. Obviously, with Steph out right now, it's going to look bad. It's not always going to look this bad. Wiggins will be better. Clay will probably be better. Draymond will be Draymond, obviously. When he's playing, he's still really effective when he's not doing clown shit. But uh, yeah, a lot of red flags here. Did you have anything else on that, or can I move us on? No, I'm good. All right. The New York Knicks, Cash. How do you think that this team is surviving, not only just surviving, but playing well, 6-5 and five with a plus-4 net rating, despite being 27th in true shooting and 19th in opponent true shooting? It's because they are... The best rebounding team. I was going to say, well, on the offensive end, they're surviving because of the second chance points. And then they're. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the best rebounding team that exists in the NBA.com database, which goes back to the 1996-97 season. So 27 years. I don't know how much further than that I could go back before I would find a team that is grabbing more than what the Knicks are currently grabbing in terms of a share of overall available rebounds, which is 54.4%. But right now they are number one in both offensive and defensive rebounding. And their offensive rebound rate, this is if we go uh, by the cleaning the glass database, is 34.6%. That is the highest in 20 years since the uh, the 2003-04 Jazz and that's, you know, the, the league-wide offensive rebounding rate is the highest it's been in nine years. We talked a lot about this last year, about how and why offensive rebounding is on the rise. But the Knicks, even in that rising offensive rebounding environment, are setting themselves apart. And Mitchell Robinson is really leading the charge. His individual offensive rebounding rate of 20.4%, if it holds, will be the third highest all-time behind Dennis Rodman in 1994-95, and Jason Williams, that's uh, New Jersey Nets Jason Williams in 97-98. So they're just 
you know, they're a team that doesn't shoot the ball particularly well. They've had some issues on defense in terms of being able to suppress the way that opponents shoot the ball, but they are making up for it by just being a colossal rebounding juggernaut. And if you couple that incredible rebounding first, again, in offensive and defensive rebounding with very strong turnover rates on both sides of the ball, they are at plus 10 shooting possessions per game, which we talked a ton about this in terms of the Raptors the last couple of years. And the Raptors were a little over nine in their shooting possession advantage last year, which was an NBA record. And the Knicks are currently on track to break it. Yeah, I mean, it tracks. Like, I didn't realize the defensive rebounding was also that outrageous, but I knew their offensive rebounding numbers were off the charts, and I knew that that's kind of how they were surviving on the offensive. They were quote-unquote surviving. I know the numbers aren't great, but given how bad they started the season shooting the ball, um, although, good news, Knicks fans. We talked about it last week. Excited to tell you, Julius Randle is not Woody Salisbury. He's shooting better than him, and the Knicks might be okay because of it. Uh, but yeah, like it, it, it tracks. They're a phenomenal rebounding team, and the turnover stuff. Obviously, look if you you keep the ball on one end, you steal, like, take it on the other end. You close defensive possessions with a defensive rebound. You keep your possessions alive with offensive rebounds. You can overcome some basic challenges on both ends. Now, I am a little surprised though. You said they're what nineteenth in opponent true shooting percentage. That does surprise me because I thought they were a little more stout defensively. And I guess if we're talking more big picture, I'm not sure how much faith I have in a team that is relying so heavily on the glass. You know, like, I I, I thought their defense would be better than that. I know we are still early enough in the season where that, you know, might be a little misleading. But I guess out of all the things you've, mention in your little tangent about the Knicks I think that's the part that actually surprised me the most because I would have thought their opponents numbers were lower than that but I guess not um okay so they're currently giving up the third highest opponent three-point frequency in the league and they're not really getting luck like they're not getting unlucky or lucky in that regard like their opponents are shooting basically league average on those threes but they're getting a lot of them I think what is really surprising to me is that Opponents are shooting 70% at the rim against them, which they've been one of the best rim protecting teams in the league the last few years. Like that has, you know, apart from all the other stuff we've mentioned in terms of like the possession advantage, that's what's fueled their success is like interior defense. And Mitchell Robinson has been a big part of that. And just watching him play this year, I think he's been awesome as a rim protector. So that number is kind of surprising to me. And you know, maybe you could say that it's because the, like they do like to pressure the ball and they give some stuff up on the backside of that. But especially when you think of, you know, another thing you could say is Mitchell Robinson really likes to contest shots. Mm-hmm. And when he does that, oftentimes, you know, you can leave the defensive glass naked. And if you're giving up a lot of putback opportunities, and that's going to skew your uh, defensive field goal per- percentage at the rim as well. But they're first in defensive rebound rate. So I don't really have a good explanation for why that is. But I think in terms of, you know, you saying, I don't know if I trust a team where they're relying on rebounding. The counter that I would have to that is like, rebounding feels sort of stable to me. If you prove to be a really good rebounding team, I feel like, yeah, there's obviously going to be some variance because of the way the ball bounces sometimes. But that feels like a pretty sturdy thing that you can fall back on as opposed to like, 
if your defensive success or failure is tied to opponent shooting in some way. No, I, and I get that, and I I didn't mean that I don't trust that the rebounding can continue. Like, I think they're a great rebounding team that will continue to be. What I meant more is, like, I don't know how much I trust a team that is giving up almost, like, a bottom 10 mark in terms of opponent shooting. Now, some of that might be luck-driven, although to your point, like, three-point-wise, it's not really unsustainable what opponents are doing. It's just that opponents are getting a lot of them, so... Mm-hmm. That when I said I didn't trust them, that's more what I meant. It's not that I know I, I don't trust the rebounding to continue. It's that I don't know how much I trust a team that defensively is giving up what they're giving up and counting on their defensive rebounding to kind of like negate that. Yeah, and again, I just like I just don't really get it because the the reason that and this has been again uh, a trend since Thibodeau took over there, they give up a lot of threes, mm-hmm. but it is in the interest of protecting the paint. Like they're sending extra bodies. They want, you know, four guys to have a foot in the paint uh, when, when they have their shell established and they have, they play two bigs together most of the time. And one of those bigs in Mitchell Robinson is like one of the better shot deterrents at the rim in the game. So for them to be giving up all those threes and getting burned at the rim, the way that they are is again, something I just don't have a great explanation for. And I'm just sort of inclined to t- to like chalk it up to some randomness right now and, and think that it's probably going to change, but I guess we'll have to see. Um, okay, so Cash, the, the stuff about the Warriors, that was sort of the, the big one that you wanted to hit on. Do you have any others? No, like I said, I mean, I, I do think it's really interesting that Reddish has replaced Reeves in the Lakers starting lineup because while we, again, we discussed how much Reeves was struggling, the shooting is starting to come back now, like... I'm not really sure what Cam Reddish gives them that even a struggling Austin Reeves doesn't give them. So kind of curious to see how that plays out and also like how long it takes Reeves to take that spot back. Or I don't know, maybe, maybe does Darvin Ham see it the other way where he's like, no, we're like Austin's now starting to play well since I moved him to the bench. So maybe this is actually the best role for him. I think there are a lot of things people and us included are going to talk about with the Lakers over the course of the season. But I think this has become now an under the radar thing to follow is like, is Austin Reeves just a full-time sixth man now? Can he win that spot back from Cam Reddish? And also what is it exactly that Cam Reddish brings to that starting lineup that Austin Reeves can't? Because sure, at the beginning, you can be like, well, Austin Reeves was really struggling. And so Cam Reddish was bringing more shooting. But if we're going by like overall proven abilities, I'm not sure. I would say Cam Reddish is a better shooter than Austin Reeves. No, I mean, I think Reddish has been playing well and like defending really hard. He's been hitting his threes lately. I feel like that's more an issue of with Reeves in the starting lineup. It just felt like he didn't know where he was supposed to be getting his offense from and like when or how to sort of impose himself in that offense. And like, Having, you know, LeBron on the floor, D'Angelo Russell on the floor, you got all these ball handlers out there. I feel like when he would get his touches, he was just pressing a little bit. And playing off the bench probably alleviates that to some extent. It just allows him to be more comfortable knowing what his role is. And I think the the big thing with that is, you know, mainly just like splitting him and Russell up more than anything. So it, from that perspective, I understand it and I actually kind of like the move. Um I've got a couple more here that we can breeze through. I'm going to put you on the spot for this one. Just like rapid fire, first ones that come to your head if you had to guess, okay? I'm going to give you five guesses to see if you can get this. 
the NBA team that currently has the best three-point percentage. Best three-point percentage? Yeah, five guesses. Go. Um, I know it's not Indiana. Like, if I hadn't looked at the numbers to write that, I would have said Indiana, but I know it's not them. So I'm not. They're third. Yeah. Um, Boston? No. Sacramento? No. Phoenix? No. Oh, Denver? No. Right. It wouldn't have been that obvious because the fact you're asking me, it's definitely going to be a surprising team. So let me think. Uh, you got one more guess. More obscure. Okay, let me think more obscure here for a second. I'm trying to think of a team that I just would not think because that has to be the answer given that you're asking it. So like M- Minnesota? No. Okay. OKC, baby. Oh, wow. Okay. The Thunder, who we've, you know, Chad Holmgren last everything. <laughs> last year, coming into this year, we were like, you know, I, I obviously was like a big Thunder optimist coming into this season, but I would have said they still, for the most part, have a spacing issue to address, but there's not enough shooting on this team. And yet they are scorching the nets right now, Cash, to the tune of 39.5% from deep. Shot 19 for 32 from three in a trouncing of the Warriors last night. Isaiah Joe was seven for seven. And that dude, I mean, even last year when they signed him off the scrap heap, completely transformed their offense because they just needed somebody, anybody who could space the floor and shoot on the move. But now, I mean, yes, Chet's been a big part of it because he's shooting over 50% from deep. Kaysen Wallace is shooting over 50% from deep. Isaiah Joe, he's at 47%. Dort is at 46%. Jalen Williams at 39%. And to, to see this team with everything they're already capable of offensively, the relentless driving, the amount of playmaking they can put on the floor at one time, to now add this ridiculous shooting on top of that. I'm not, I don't think they're going to finish the season number one in three-point percentage, but it's crazy, man. It feels unfair, honestly, that they're shooting the ball this well if with everything else they're capable of. And I guess, you know, what's sort of pulling them back, it's funny, they're, they're like basically the anti-Knicks because they're dead last in both offensive and defensive rebounding. But they're fifth in effective field goal percentage and second in effective field goal percentage allowed. So in terms of like shot making and their ability or luck, I guess, if you want to call it that, in terms of suppressing opponent shooting uh, has been as good as any team in the league. But I mean, they're they're eight and four. It's hard to complain, but if there's anything that's going to bring them back down to earth, it feels like it's going to be the rebounding thing. Yeah, I mean, if they're even averageish as a three point shooting team on decent volume, that unlocks a lot for them and probably gives them a path to that top four seed that you boldly predicted they would secure this season. I'm feeling so good about that bold prediction right now. Them, the Wolves, obviously the Nuggets cruising. I think, and, and I, I said top five, by the way. So I've got some cushion there to work oh, with. Oh, okay. I forgot. I thought it was. Uh... I, I wish I'd gone bolder. I wish I'd just gone straight up. That's that's going to be one, two, three in the West. Because I might be feeling pretty good about that, even if I'd gone that bold with my prediction. But uh, to have those three teams in the top five feels eminently plausible right now. Man, I, I God, I love the Thunder. I yeah, love the way no, they're you playing. and me both. Uh, and Chet has just fit there like a glove, as I expected him to, at both ends of the floor. But he has not, like, defensive rebounding was a huge problem for them last year. And I thought that maybe 
in spite of how svelte he is, just the sheer height and length would help them at that end in terms of cleaning the glass. And it hasn't at all. And I think it's a good reminder. Like the Cavs are a good example of this too, because they've got two seven footers in their starting lineup. And yet this year, as last year, they are in the bottom 10 in defensive rebound rate. And it's, it's just a good reminder that when it comes to rebounding, heft is probably more important than height. And that's true, you know, not just of the, like the, the big men you have on the floor, but also the, the surrounding players, like the guards and wings. That's where I'm a little disappointed in OKC, though, because I would have thought, despite their nominal center being a bit of a toothpick, you know, they've got big wings and guards like Shea, Giddy. Those guys are super tall for the positions they play. Dort built like a brick house. Like you would think that in terms of just gang rebounding, they'd be able to do better than they've done so far. But yeah, that's again, this was more about the Thunder shooting and, and how surprising that's been to me and maybe flying a little bit under the radar. But uh, that's all I got. I had a little note here about the Heat being on a seven game win streak, despite none of it feeling all that convincing. Have you, have you caught any of the Heat during the seven game win streak, Cash? Yeah, I have. And like Jimmy has put a couple of really good games together back to back after starting the season looking very un Jimmy like. So, I mean, obviously things trending in the right direction for them, but I'm still not the heat believer that I have been in previous years. I I don't quite think this team has it. And as impressive as winning seven games in a row has been, it hasn't really changed my mind big picture wise. Like you said, it hasn't looked all that impressive. And I guess we'll see as this schedule gets tougher and, you know, well, they got a back-to-back set against the Bulls coming up, so it's not going to get tougher right away. That's for sure. But... But yeah, the seven-game win streak, it was Wizards, Lakers, Grizzlies, Hawks, Spurs, Hornets, Nets. So a couple like decent teams sprinkled in there, but definitely not a murderer's row. And all of those wins were by single digits. So I guess that's why it hasn't felt particularly convincing. But I would say if you're looking for like real signs of optimism to pull from this start where they are eight and four, half game out of second in the East, despite having a barely positive point differential, it's that Bam looks incredible. And like doing all of the things I feel like that so many of us have been wanting to see from him since, like I I always thought back to what he looked like in the bubble offensively, how aggressive he was and the way that he was able to impose himself, not only as, you know, a guy who, when they're running, dribble handoff stuff through him and, it, and it's getting shut down. Or when he's on the short roll, he's able to hit those short mid-range jumpers, which he's doing at a really high rate right now. But like stuffing guys in the basket, like blowing past opposing centers or backing smaller bigs down and just dunking on them. And he's doing all of that right now. Like he has the, the little short jumper that's going in at a pretty high clip, but he's also just playing super aggressively in terms of getting to the rim and... I think there's been a lot of times where they just have nothing going on offense and he's absolutely carried them. Uh, unrelated, but it actually just reminded me when you said Bam doing some, like a lot of things that you know, people didn't think he was capable of, that one of the things I wanted to mention and, and just forgot over the course of our 75 minutes here with, with like an under-the-radar thing is Joel Embiid averaging almost six assists a game was one of the things I thought was. Turnover still obviously high because it's Joel Embiid, but the the playmaking has... Uh, stuck out for him and then the last thing I wanted to mention because I also forgot to mention this when talking about the Warriors but that starting lineup you know being terrible 
which is so out of character for them. 30 lineups have played uh, at least 60 minutes together so far this season. So up on about one per team. And the Warriors starters are 26th out of those 30 lineups in net rating. Oof. Yeah. Oof. That's tough. Okay. Let's leave all that there, Cash. Uh, do you have a fan shout out for us before we get out of here? I do. So this week's fan shout out goes out to Eric Coates. Goes by Albert Strummer on Instagram. Uh, DM'd me a few weeks back, the end of October, uh, to say he's been listening since 2019. Currently, he listens from Nova Scotia, uh, but has listened to us uh, in various places, I guess, where he's lived. Says he loves the analysis and dynamic between us. He also loves the regular Seinfeld references, and he threw a couple questions at us. He asked one who our favorite announcers and commentators are. And then I also asked who our favorite Seinfeld side characters are. I'll just throw it out there. Look, there, there are a lot of good, like broadcast teams, obviously around the league and, and uh, announcing partnerships and like the, the, the national ones, Kevin Harlan's, you know, even Ian Eagle, we all know, but the, the team ones that are really good. I think Mike Breen obviously would be like, you know, maybe my choice even on the national level, but the fact that Knicks fans get him for like most of their actual just regular games and get him and Clyde Frazier together has to be near the top. And then speaking of Ian Eagle, that Nets broadcast with Eagle on it is really good. And it's like the most subtle things with Ian Eagle that get me like the the day before the this the the elections that happened in the US this year, which was like November 7th, the NBA didn't have games on them, but the night before um, the Nets, I believe, were playing the Bucks, and campaign hit a shot. It was like a meaningless shot in the second quarter or something. And Ian Eagle just had this like great caller. He said like he gets randomly excited for this campaign bucket, which from the opposing team of the one he's technically covering, and somehow turns that into like campaign with a don't forget election day tomorrow because his name's campaign. It's just little things like that with Ian Eagle, in addition to how good he is on the call, really stick out to me. And then for the Seinfeld characters. Sorry, the favorite Seinfeld side characters. Too many to list, but uh, the library cop, Mr. Bookman, has to be up there for me. The way that guy stole that the scenes and that episode in general. And then for a more recurring but still somewhat side character, you got to go with Frank Costanza. But for true side characters, Mr. Bookman is at the top of my list. Yeah, Philip Baker Hall, man. R.I.P. Incredible character actor. Uh, that's a good shout. I, uh, yeah, in terms of broadcasters, I mean, I feel like Kevin Harlan has just always been my favorite. Just the palpable enthusiasm, somehow like catchphrases that he always has at the ready. I will never forget where I was and how I felt when LeBron dunked on Kevin Garnett with no regard for human life. I love Kevin Harlan, man. Uh, yeah, in terms of local ones, I mean, maybe this is on me. I cover the league and I just like don't have a good feel for which ones I really like and which ones I don't. But like, obviously everyone's going to shout out Eric Collins on the Hornets broadcast because of how ridiculously amped up he gets for sometimes very mundane plays. And uh, I think the Timberwolves broadcast in general is really good. Just it's very informative. Like they have this segment with Micah Nori, one of their assistant coaches, breaking down like opponent plays and like defensive tactics in a way that I don't see on any other broadcast, like very high level stuff. So yeah, those I guess those are a couple of good ones to spotlight. Obviously, the Nets broadcast with uh, with Ian Eagle and Sarah Kustok, they're fantastic. Antonio Daniels, I think, is really good on the Pelicans broadcast as a color guy. Uh, those are just a few that are coming to mind right now. Um, okay, um, cool. And then, sorry, before before we get out of here, uh, so thank you to Eric for supporting the show as long as he has, and uh, and for 
you know, giving us something to answer as part of him reaching out and us shouting him out. But the last thing I wanted to mention, a guy that we've, a fan that we've shouted out before, but I just wanted to give him a, a secondary shout out on this show for what he DM'd me this week. But Matt Makepeace, who again, we've shouted out before, DM'd me on Monday just to randomly say, James Harden is the Fugazi of the year, right? Clown emoji. That's it. So shout out to Matt Makepeace, dude. I said we're not talking about the Clippers on this episode. <laughs> We'll we'll circle back to that once they've had a few more games to try and gel and we'll see how this Westbrook coming off the bench experiment goes. But that feels like a good place to leave it. So thank you to Eric. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. And uh, a reminder to hit us up on social media. I'm at Joey underscore W on Twitter. Cash is at Joseph Cacharo. You can email us at joseph.cacharo at thescore.com or joe.wolfond at thescore.com or DM Cash on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash and let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like, how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, any of the above, and we'll be sure to get you a shout out on a future episode. But until one of those future episodes, this has been Under the Radar Storylines with Joey W., and Joe Cash. We'll talk to y'all next week. Pound the Rock. 